you're listening to Tripods Cast. Episode 9 Legacy. Welcome to this episode of Tripods Cast. My name is Rebecca Ray, and with me are my co-hosts, Danny Ray. Hello. And John Isles. Hello. This is the penultimate episode of Tripods Cast. <gasps> Le gasp. In this episode, we will be exploring the enduring legacy of the Tripods books and TV show. In the 1980s, the BBC's television adaptation of the Tripods books grabbed the attention of freelance cartoonist, illustrator and graphic designer Adrian J. Andrews. Andrews wrote to Richard Bates in 1985 regarding forming an official Tripods fan club called the League of Freemen, the official Tripod Society. The League was formed in October 1985, just prior to Series 2 airing, and was officially recognised by the BBC. Before forming the Society, Andrews had been involved in co-running fan groups, working on fanzines and behind the scenes at conventions for other sci-fi franchises such as Blake 7. The League of Freemen initially had 105 members and ran a quarterly fanzine called Gazette de Mont Blanc. Andrews produced club merchandise such as t-shirts, badges and patches. When the BBC cancelled the show, the League organised a Save the Tripods campaign to get Series 3 made. They started petitions and members contacted their local newspapers. In later years, the League set up a Yahoo group, which by 2009 had 400 members from around the world. This was Andrew's proudest achievement that he was able to bring people together. The club also organised many events, including exhibitions, location visits and meetups. Over the course of these events, the cast and crew of the television show formed close relationships with the fans, with no tables or barriers between them. In March 2019, Adrian Andrews sadly passed away, with tributes pouring in from across the globe. Graz Richards took over running the league, and it is currently run by Daniel Yarnstrom. The club shifted online from Yahoo groups to Facebook and currently has 250 members. There are other Tripods fan clubs. For example, Tripod Army Finland fan club, which formed in 2005, which started as a tribute page and evolved into a Facebook fan group in 2009. In Germany, there is the Dreibenigen Hersche fan club, which formed in 2001. The German fan club runs a main website as well as a forum and Trippypedia, founded by Sven Vucenovic. I've just been reading about some of these tripods events held by the League. There was one in 1986 called the Trek to the White Mountains that was held at Saltwood Castle in Kent. It sounds like it was a live recreation of the tripods video game, but unlike the game, it didn't suck. (laughs) I have in my hand a copy of Gazette de Mont Blanc, issue 3, from winter 1987, the club's fanzine. And there is a report on the Trek to the White Mountains. Oh, cool. So I'm just going to read some extracts from this. So it says it took about two hours for them to walk. Uh, it was the day was sunny, and they checked in at the starting point where they were given a couple of maps each and sent off across open country in search of a freeman's hideaway in the White Mountains. They they had villagers who would help or hinder and give them new maps. There were people pretending to be black guards. There were people pretending to be freemen. 
And they also had giant cardboard cutouts of tripods. Nice. I'd love to have been involved in something like that. Yeah, I was literally just thinking that. I was like, why? Why did it have to happen? When I was two years old and before you were born. Five years before I was born. Uh, it says Jim Baker also attended the trek, though didn't actually walk the course. He was waiting at the castle to greet the trekkers when they found their goal for Blue Peter's Lend an Ear appeal. And that's a cool little fanzine. That's something I really feel like us younger fans miss out on is fanzines because they're just not around anymore. It's everything's on the internet now, like Tumblr and. There, there's a slight Pinterest. resurgence. Is but, there? But a few years ago, with Revive Dot Two, was a resurgence of A5 fanzines that you could either get printed or download as pdfs but so this one is black and white a5 fanzine which some of our listeners will be very familiar with uh, it's got a new section it's got hand-drawn cover there's even a comic strip called tripods 1999 by lars hagman oh that, that okay that is cool uh, and this is episode two i know this is the final issue uh, and it says to be continued but the artwork's quite good there's a short story about coggy there's a competition to win a tripod viewmaster. I want to join. I want. I want. I want to do. I want to do the competition. I want to do the competition. I want to do the competition. When's the deadline, John? When's the deadline? First uh, of May, nineteen eighty-seven, Danny. Why are they always before I was born? Oh. Along with this copy of Gazette de Mont Blanc, which was kindly lent to us by Will Handcroft, there was also a sew-on patch oh. for the annual games Trek to the White Mountains eighty-six. And it's uh, Adrian Andrews drawn a tripod with a mountain behind it and the Blue Peter badge. That is, uh, and that's cool. It's, um, yeah, because it's got 86 under the tripod with the Blue Peter shipping between the 8 and the 6. Yeah, and it's uh, blue on white. It's, it's very good. Speaking very good. of fanzines, yesterday I was digging through some old fanzines from the 90s oh called Stone Circle, created by you, Kevin, our editor, and uh, someone called Andrew Crines. And looking yes. through this fanzine, I noticed a section called Page 101. Ripped off shamelessly from where, the TV show. Yeah, where people would choose the sci-fi hates and would dump the worst of sci-fi into the bin. And I noticed mm-hmm. John had suggested the tripods. Did I? Yes, you did. The gas. I, I don't remember this. It's all coming out now, John. <laughs> I'd forgotten this. Kevin said everyone oh, suggested... Oh, obviously just things to put in, yeah. In the image, yeah, and right. you suggested a tripod, and it was a tripod <laughs> tottering out of a dumpster. <laughs> Next to stuff that is genuinely cack. Yeah. <laughs> You are. You're a fake fan. Fake fan. Fake fan. You've been cut out. So this is just a suggestion of the kind of thing that you might want to put in it, yes. Other things people put in you with things like Paradise Towers, and you put tripods Sorry, in sorry. Anybody who puts Paradise Towers in should be ashamed of that, themselves. That, that was Andrew. Well, that makes sense. Sequest was in there. Fair enough. Season one was all right. One thing I was curious about is, you know, just how far active Tripod's fandom is in other countries, because as we're seeing, there's not just the League of Free Men, there's a German fan club, a Finnish fan club. I wonder if there's any others. We've had fans who've wrote in and told us things like the books were not published ever in Italian. Other fans have said the books are published in Japan twice. There's also a New Zealand fan called Arlo, and he has a YouTube channel called Arlo Whom. And he and his friends made uh, their own tripod series set in 1985 or 84 when the invasion happened, which is quite impressive. Unfortunately, series one is geolocked to us in the UK, although, but weirdly we can see series two and it, it looks odd. good. Mm-hmm. And speaking as someone who made fan films, uh, I'm impressed. Oh yeah, yeah, for those who don't know, John and Kevin for years have been making Doctor Who fan films. And John made a Matrix fan film even. 
Yeah, so uh, that's Westlake Films. Plug, plug, plug. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> um, one member of the league, Jason Reynolds, he said the books were popular in the US in the mid-1970s. I have given sets of books to many young folks through the years and they have all loved them. Uh, and he goes on to say he teaches astronomy at college level and have even more reading the books as part of a student's extra credit projects, science fiction versus science fact. And he lives in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Okay, I want to be in that class. That sounds cool. Thanks, James. <laughs> yeah. Spreading the word there. Yeah. Doing the Lord's work. I do wonder if um, we're going to get new generations of fans discovering these books. I mean, that might be happening in America. I'm not sure. But we're still coming across people in other Twitter discussions unrelated to ours that are talking about the books and say, hey, do you remember the tripods? I remember. Oh, I remember. So I guess it's still appearing over there but not here in the uk as far as i can tell and that's that's cool it is, it is cool hearing about fans who discovered the books in school because i never account encountered them at school and you didn't down no but then uh, when i was at school it, they were all yeah they were the, co- the color coded ones where you had different levels yes uh, oh yeah, yeah. Like, scheme. Gold, that's it gold level and yeah. yeah and like you, you had kipper and biff yeah we had kipper and biff and that oh, i hate those i did my bachelor's dissertation on biff chip and kipper on the bbc school's website and keeping with this episode's theme of Tripods fandom, let's listen to our first interview clip. Here's Jim Baker. So how does it feel to be inadvertently the face of the Tripods? So both Kerry and Robin had been approached by the cult of production team, but both interviews fell through due to reasons beyond their control. I don't think that was the cult of Tripods. Oh. I, I, I think that was something else, although I could be wrong. Mm. Um, but that the cult of was a series of programs. They had the cult yeah, of Blake Seven and stuff like that. Ups. Yeah. So I don't think they ran out of money. It's for DVD bonus features with Robin because they're thinking about doing a catch up yeah, interview with right. him. I mean, this is the first time I've remembered it for ages, mm. but I don't think it was. I think that was a different project to the cult of. And the reason the cult of went the way it did is because we're now talking about a good few years ago. Mm. And it was difficult to get in contact with those guys at that time. And I wasn't just purely because of that. I had my sort of face in the mix and I was I was still in contact with my agents. So when the BBC went back to look at who was involved with it, they obviously go to the agent to find the actor. Mm. And if other actors have, are no longer actors and they no longer have an agent, it's going to be hard to find them. I still was in contact with my agent because Tony, uh, who's now sadly died, and, and Mo were sort of lifelong friends, really. You know, they're sort of part of the family. Um, so we've always kept in touch. It, it did give the false impression that, you know, we was a, had walked away from it. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and obviously for a, for a while, people thought Kerry had died. That's Kerry, right. They was on a Buddhist retreat. And, he was uh, like, he, well, he was on a retreat and John was in Chile. Uh, he may have been in Austria at that time, but he certainly wasn't yeah. in the UK. Yeah. It's funny how different directions you've all gone in. You know, is it the curse of child actors? Yeah, maybe. It's a curse, isn't it? You get sort of, you're now labelled, it's like being stamped on the forehead. That's what you are now. And therefore, trying to break into anything else becomes very mm. difficult. But with me, I think the, the gap between tripods being confirmed has ended. Yeah. I'd already gone in a different direction anyway. I'd gone behind the camera. I'd, 
But the eight, the late eighties was a difficult time. There was a big, yeah. big recession, and nobody was spending new money on productions anyway. Everyone was rehashing yeah. their, their adverts and lots of repeats, especially on the BBC. Um, yeah. So, so it was a difficult time. I ended up having to, because a family came along, I ended up having to drive a bus. I, I went in that direction, got a regular job, you know, as hundreds of thousands and millions of people do. Never regret doing it. It was an experience of a lifetime. And who's to say what would happen if Series 3 had been made? Maybe it would have been different. The BBC have invested in some pretty disastrous TV programs over the years. And if you want to put tripods in that bracket, that's your choice. But tripods is a three-part thing. Just make it and have a three-part thing. You've now got a rounded product, which you can sell. And think of the thousands, millions they threw into things like El Dorado at the time. (laughs) Yeah. What a stupid thing to do. Imagine not having the the third part of the Lord of the Rings or something. Yeah. Here I am, 35 years on, still bitter, twisted. (laughs) And making soap now as well. Making soap now, yes. Um, A love of handmade, really. I I like doing stuff with my hands. always have. I tinker with engines and I like gardening. I like cooking. I like, you know, cook from scratch and baking cakes and stuff. And um, it was surprisingly easy. And I started making it as a hobby and it became something that people said, you know what, you should try. Uh, So I had to drive through all the legal loops that all the other cosmetic companies do, uh, L'Oreal and one thing and another. And I did that as a lot of hard work, getting some soaps to market. But it, it's worked to a certain extent. I do enjoy, I really love making it. The recipe might stay the same. The ingredients might stay the same. But every single batch comes out slightly different. Mm. And you learn each time. It's like making a cake. It comes out just slightly different each time. And each yeah. time you make it, it gets better. I've got some very loyal customers who really love it. And that's that's quite rewarding, you know. Danny received some of your soap for Christmas. I did. Oh, did you? I love soaps like that. I love a lot of handmade things. I'm very similar. I'm yeah. very crafty. Uh, yeah. So I really appreciate when something's handmade. So, yeah, it's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. yeah, we give it, oh, we're always giving each you. other scrubs and soaps for Christmas. When I found out you make soap, I'm like, right, I'm getting that for Dan. She was very surprised. And I've tried your winter warmer soap. It's lovely. Yeah, well, I've smell. always preferred soap. It's uh, so much more. I mean, you're left with a plastic bottle at the end when you buy the gel. Mm. And you've got this plastic bottle you've got to throw away or recycle or whatever. With soap, you don't have that. You have this flimsy little bit of card or paper, and it's much better. It lasts longer. It's better for you. Mm. You know, it's one of the oldest traded commodities on the planet. It's over 2,000 years old. The, the, the way to make it was discovered naturally. Somebody just noticed, oh, look, if we do that and that and that, we get bubbles and it cleans stuff easier, you know. The idea evolved and they started being able to make lumps of soap. And some parts of the world um, still make it very much like it was made thousands of years ago. I don't know if you if you look on YouTube, there's um, sadly now because of the war, they probably don't make it as much. But there's Aleppo soap. They, they heat it up. This cauldron is then poured over the floor and it sets on the floor, which is quite incredible. Yeah. Once it's hardened, this guy goes along with a hammer, smacking it with a stamp of Aleppo soap. And it's amazing. He's sitting on his bum and with his legs apart and he's hitting these lumps of soap <laughs> with his hammer to put the stamp in it. It's really quite wonderful. And then they cut it into blocks and it's great stuff. If you've ever had a, a lump of Aleppo soap, it's all irregular and wonky and, and funny and it takes ages to, to get the rough edges off and stuff. But that's that's glorious to me. I love that. Mm. I know exactly what you're talking about as well. I have actually seen that. 
You've seen that video, have you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? I it mean, is, yeah. It's mesmerizing. Everything they here is, is so clinical. Everything's yeah. so clean. Mm. I mean, everything I use now has to be industry standard because of um, all the safety concerns and one thing and another. But when you go out to the to those places where they're making it just raw like that, it's fabulous. It really yeah. is wonderful to watch. Did you consider doing that with your own soap and getting a tripod stamp? Well, how many times have we been told that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's not get, the original idea. I did idea. entertain a stamp for a little while. I had a, a stamp. It's, it's so tight. I have to, not only do I make it in small batches, I then have to cut each bar, I trim yeah. each bar, and then I wrap each bar. Yeah. And it takes six weeks to cure. So I've got plenty of time to do that. But each bar goes through this exhaustive process. And for one guy, adding another step, Mm. it's just yet more work so I've given up on the stamp and yeah. no one sees it anyway until they start <laughs> using it in the shower and by then yeah. the stamp really doesn't doesn't mean anything really just just going back to what you said earlier about you were invited over to Germany and you've done fan gatherings at Friday Street and uh, how, how was that experience for you it was great um I always get a bit nerve-wracking starting these these fan groups and and, and that Years on, I'm when you know when I'm a I became a bus driver. I was a truck driver for a little while, and that's who I was. I was that sort of working father, young kids paying the mortgage, blah blah blah. And you go and meet small groups of people for a project you did 25, 30, 35 years ago. Suddenly, you become that person again, and that's quite strange that it's still possible to do that. So many years on, people look to you as 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 Henry, as as an actor in one of their favourite shows. So it's a real privilege for that because it's such a, a little-known show. When you mention it to most people, they go, what, tripods, what, what? Oh, no, I don't remember it, mate. For the small groups like you guys who do remember it, it's very important, and it's important to me as well. It's nice sharing that time, going in just to meet them and to talk about it. In Germany, we go to um, a hut in the woods. Sounds a bit bizarre, but it's like <laughs> a, a, a communal hut where you can, uh, instead of camping, you you stay in bunk beds and yeah. what have you. There's a communal kitchen and a communal room and a fire pit where they do barbecue and stuff. And you just basically hang out, you know, and drink beer and have some barbecue and have a great weekend and then come home again. It's good fun. Yeah, like you said, you've become friends with them. Yeah, absolutely. I speak to them regularly. Sven, who is the the leader of the say the leader, but you know, he's the guy <laughs> that organizes it. He's he's a very good friend. We talk regularly, and other people in those groups uh, and the English guy, I mean, Adrian. Sadly, he passed away, and the the English fan group isn't what it was. There used to be a Yahoo group that would meet quite frequently. There was a Yahoo chat group, and I used to join in with that, but. Yeah. Sadly, the English fan group isn't as organised um, as once it was, which is a shame. But where there is some organisation, it can be good fun. And that's why it's really pleasing to me that there is still room for new groups um, like yourself. You know, you're starting this podcast, which means there, there's obviously interest in it, which is, um, yeah. after all this time, that's quite amazing. I don't know how much of our podcast you've heard, but Danny had never heard of her books until we started reading them last yeah. year and, and she became hooked. And then we said, you know, there's a TV show as well. I was like, really? I need to watch. And they didn't quite tell me that it had been cancelled until no. I was slightly hooked. And I was like, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not fair. No, no. Absolutely. I'm very bitter about it. <laughs> not as bitter as me. No, no. no. <laughs> 
share that bitterness as well as the enjoyment. It's nice <laughs> yeah. to share that bitterness, isn't it? We've yeah. all got a reason to be bitter about that. And the appalling way it ends, really. I mean, mm. nothing against the guys who made it or acted in it, but um, it comes to a real sort of car crash end at the moment. It's, it's, it's almost like the handbrake goes on and the, mm. it all sort of twists out shape, doesn't it, at the end? You think, hey, yeah. terrible. Anyway. Yeah. Mm. You, you know, Richard found out from um, somebody sweeping the studio floor. Yeah. On the recording. It's yeah. appalling. The, the BBC is a huge, uh, poorly oiled machine, and it makes decisions on very, very, sometimes very bad premises. You know, if it had made it on an artistic level, they would have made it in full. There's no two ways about that. You know, they would have spent the money. They would have got it made because it was the right thing to do. But accountants got involved and department heads got involved who really couldn't care less um, about the artistic side of it because it was a project that was costing money on and what mm. have you. And they wanted to go in a different direction and they thought they were more important. And that's what's wrong with the BBC and institutions like that. They get a lot of stuff right. The BBC is great for a lot of what it does, but that departmentalize that big, very poorly run organization sometimes just clunks along and makes really bad decisions. And Tripods is a victim of that. What's the most enduring memory or experience from the Tripods that sticks with you? Well, um, <laughs> sorry, big question. <laughs> what is the most? There, there, there can't be the most. I mean, the, the location work was was fantastic fun. Yeah, all of those experiences. When I start to think back, I get all these images popping into my head, the, the London Tube where we filmed and the, the, the Welsh slate mines and the forests and the, the vagrant village. and um, That freaked Danny out, that scene. <laughs> uh, did, did you know that scene? Um, I twisted my knee and this guy, Dave Edwards, had to take me off to hospital because I twisted him and it was really quite badly. It was very, very painful. And they wanted to carry on filming. And uh, <laughs> there was a waitress in the hotel where we were staying. And the director said, do you know what? That waitress from the back looks like Jim. <laughs> I don't know who's more insulted, me or her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> managed to rope this waitress in. She said yes, and they took her to the set the following day, and she did some of my background shots, some walking shots. You can't, I can't tell who... You, you, you can't tell which, which shots are her. They, wow. they, put my, you, they put my costume on her, and she did yeah. some walking around shots, and I did shots because there's a large part of that. I'm just laying down, aren't I? Um, yeah. Out of account sort of thing, which was genuinely in the script. <laughs> I can remember... When I came out of this uh, doctor's surgery with this huge, not a plaster on, but they'd put a big, big bandage on my legs to keep it yeah. straight. And the look on their faces when I got back was, oh, my God. Not from, they couldn't care less about my health or my well-being. No, no, of course. Oh, no, we can't film anymore. We've got an immobile Henry, you know. But I took it off. I said, you know, the pain's gone. I'm going to take it off. And I started walking around and it, it was twinging and it was, it was hurting a little bit. But I very quickly got over it because I didn't want to be left out. I didn't want a waitress taking part, taking my, <laughs> taking my role. <laughs> Um, was she getting your your fee for those scenes? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I think she got a lot of gratitude from the producers. I'm sure they looked after her um, quite yeah. well. She got the production crew out of a bit of a hole there. They could carry on working without me, which, you know, film sets, um, even back in the 80s, that was thousands of pounds an hour, you know. Richard talks quite a bit about that, like 
the cost of things like hiring a studio, just the massive Strictly Come Dancing studio, just for a little table with a little model tripod on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that was what the BBC were like. If you wanted to go to the town hall and book a meeting room, you had to go through here and you had to speak to so-and-so and you had to go and book it with them. <laughs> that was that rigmarole you had to go through. There was no, nothing organic about it. People didn't work fluidly or together. You got what you could get out of the BBC. So, yeah, it must have been a nightmare for the production crew, um, thinking about it, trying to get things arranged. Um, and studios were full on. Studio days were incredibly busy. Lucky for me, I could go home. And we were ferried to and from the studios by taxi. But yeah, poor Kerry in his uh, bed set or rundown hotel. Yeah. I wish I'd known how he felt. I yeah. really do. Because I went home, I was having a whale of a time. I thought it was fantastic fun. And I presume John and Kerry were the same. But of course, uh, at 16, you don't sort of think outside the box. They were away from home. They no. had no real mates around them. It, yeah, it must have been difficult. And I'm really sorry I wasn't sort of alerted to that at the time. I would have happily, I think I did go and visit with them and stay with yeah. them, you know, on the odd occasion we went out and had meals and, and, and mucked around and, and stuff. But Because we did develop a great bond. I mean, that's one lasting thing out of tripods, which is great. Whenever we do talk, which is rare, but whenever we you sort of fall yeah. back into that, you know, which is great. It's really nice. We had a, we had a unique thing that tied us together and that will always be there. You can't ever get rid of that, you know? No. Yeah. John's costume from the Tripod City is in a sci-fi museum near you, I think, in Allendale. Yes, in I know that. So I haven't been there and it is my I was gonna say. to go and visit. Yeah. Adrian's family, uh, I think, the, originally had that costume. Once he died, all those costumes and props that he had went to his family mm. and they have put it on an online auction website. And I think it's still there because the prices are just... So really? he may have bought it from there, but it is my intention to go and visit. I went to, to Brighton uh, many years ago and I tried my sheepskin jacket on and yeah. it got nowhere near me. Sorry? I was saying it's a great jacket. <laughs> yeah, uh, handmade, hand-stitched, real proper sheepskin. Wow. Um, hand-stitched in segments, you know, tailored to me as the 16-year-old. Um, I, I was really looking forward to trying it on, but it just didn't fit. Yeah, all the costumes were great. I think um, Phoebe Degay did a really great job on the costumes, and she's another one that's still working quite quite well, actually. Mm. It's amazing how these people in the background, uh, they, they've continued on in the business, and you don't really see them, you know, mm. um, and they're the ones that deserve the accolade because they're, they're the ones that really made it look and sound really good. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the bit that we all enjoy, isn't it, really? So like when I was 16, I never really took stock of who the sound guy was, Alan, Alan Taylor, who did the sound on tripods. I've been speaking to him. But it's only as an adult you sort of sit back and you watch these shows and you realise how much sound is put on every single second. Uh, it's, mm. it's all sewn together with the sound. It's such an integral part of any TV show. Mm. Because the recording live in, on a Welsh slate mine when people are walking along, you get horrible, sludgy, horrible footsteps and um, it sounds awful. You know? <laughs> so when you've said your lines and it's all been enhanced and you've got the effects put on and the music on, it really sews it together and it, you don't notice it. But that's, it's, you're not meant to notice it, if you see mm. what I mean. So it's great to see all those guys are still working. Alan Taylor's only just um, 
retired actually and all the other guys that have gone on Richard Bates the producer is very deserving of a, a long rewarding career he's he's mm. done so much great television and Darling Buds of May was a massive success yeah you know um, so they're, they're the people that really worked hard and, and they're the people that I, we really ought to thank for the tripods because I, I was just lucky enough to to be able to look and sound like Henry, uh, but those people really brought it to life for us all. And my thanks goes out to them eternally. Thank you, Jim. That's been uh, yes, it's a pleasure been talking to you. Yeah, thank you. That was Jim Baker, and sadly, the last of our cast interview clips. Oh. But not the last of our interviews. Yay! <laughs> that, that was a fun interview with Jim. So there was things that he mentioned that didn't make it to the recording, but he mentioned that he's been involved in working on Chris Jones's book, which is coming out in the anniversary of the television series. But at the time when Jim was talking to us, he wasn't sure if he was allowed to tell us, so yeah. he, he was only able to allude to it. But now Chris has told us. The cat is out of the bag. Yeah. Yeah. Something I thought was important in Jim's interview was him taking the time to acknowledge the efforts of the production team behind the tripods. And maybe that makes this a good time for us at Tripodcast to take a couple of minutes to thank all the people who have helped make this podcast happen. Uh, I'd like to thank our interviewees, Will Hadcroft, Kerry Seal, John Shackley, Robin Hayter, Richard Bates, Jim Baker and Chris Jones. Yeah, it's been great as a, a fan of the tripods and of, of, of TV to, to speak to them all. Mm. You know, I've been a bit starstruck. They'd probably laugh at that. I'd also like to thank a couple of other people, uh, including Gareth Preston and Chris Geraghty. Kevin Hiley, who, despite wanting nothing to do with this, took over editing <laughs> when he heard our trailer. There's also been some fantastic fan contributions via Twitter, uh couple from Reddit, uh, through the Facebook group, Email. emails. Yeah, we couldn't have done it without you. We've been welcomed with open pincers by the League of Freemen. Uh, thank you to Alex Kahi, as he sent images of Laserdisc and a copy of the Japanese book covers. Which is so cute. Absolutely. Speaking of fan art, we had an email from Kirk Stacey. Which was just the cutest, chibi little drawings. Yeah, chibi. So to make some little stand-up dioramas, <laughs> we'll put those on our social media. But thank you for sending that to us, Kirk. But where's my Fritz? Dan wants to know where his Fritz <laughs> yeah. is. I actually have a, a, t- a plushy hippo called Fritz, named after Fritz. I, I have a pet Tribble called Tribble. Inventive. Yes. Original. I, I know, it took a lot of effort to come up with that. Mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. a trio of tapirs named Adric, Tegan and Nissa. I think we're going off track a lot yeah. here. I don't think many <laughs> listeners give a shit. <laughs> okay, so moving on. <laughs> it's... it's, it's... We haven't. It's been a labour of love, and we've done so much of it. But there's only so much we can say. And and thank you to all the fans who have pointed things out that we've missed. And just thank you for the people who listened, who listened and lurked, because people never get thanked for lurking in things. <laughs> and, and, I wonder why. But I will say thank you because it's the lurkers that that make the predominance of a show. I'm a lurker, generally speaking. I will go, I will watch, I don't necessarily comment. So I would like to thank the people who do that because I don't think you get recognised enough, so thank you very much. Oh, that was lovely, Dan. <laughs> thank you. Uh, 
Um, the thing is, with this podcast, is it evolved a lot. It was always meant to be a fun, lighthearted chat about the show between friends and talking about all the spin-off media. Um, it was never meant to be a deep dive into the show, but it did evolve over time. The more uh, support we got from people, the more contributions mm-hmm. we got and help in uh, doing interviews. So it's it's definitely grown into a bigger project, this. I, and I just want to thank fans in general for letting us in. I, I'm probably one of the newest Tripods fans, yeah. and you've welcomed me in my viewpoints in and I, I don't feel uh, as I've mentioned in a previous episode about gatekeeping in fandom oh, yeah. and my mm. issues around it I, I've never felt that once with the tripods and it's just been great that you've been so welcoming to our group yes we're basically outsiders we were never in the the league or any of the fan clubs we were just people who happened to be fans of the books and the show me or me and John at least are more familiar with the Doctor Who fandom yeah, getting involved in fan films or going to conventions and zines and all that kind of it, stuff. Exactly, and there was this parallel pocket universe of of uh, League of Freemen. Mm. I haven't encountered any gatekeeping from the Tripods fandom, which has been refreshing because you do get a lot of it in Doctor Who fandom. I find you get a lot of it in a lot of sci-fi, mm, which is Star Trek, which is one of my mm. biggest reasons why I get turned off. Yes. Yeah. And time now for our second interview clip. Here's Will Hadcroft talking about attending Tripods events and visiting Tripods filming locations. I find it interesting that for, for such a, what is still regarded as a cult and little-known TV series, mm. has this dedicated fandom. The funny thing is with the Tripods is, for me, when I was at secondary school, I was 14 when I saw Series 1, 15 for Series 2, there was only one other boy in my year who watched it and who read the books Mm. it was called Andrew Massey if he's listening hello Andrew Massey never seen him since but he was the only only one who uh, followed it everybody else gave up round about episode three I think once they realised it was called the tripods but there weren't that many tripods in it they gave up I was the so I felt like I was the only one who was a fan. I went, I went to a, a Doctor Who event many years after the Tripods was finished, but some years ago from now. A special effects guy was talking about how special effects were done in Doctor Who. And very interesting to listen to. He was talking about the Doctor Who effects, and then I just put my hand up when it was time for questions. You know, yeah. the roving mic came round, and I said, I really like the Tripods. How were those effects done? So he very kindly, because it was nothing to do with Doctor Who, explained how the effects were done. And this was prior to the Cult of the Tripods documentary and all the the behind-the-scenes things that we've seen since. And then he said something like, they spent a lot of money on that, which is, uh, you know, given how many people watched it. Yeah. You know, he was sort of having a little poke at it. Yeah. And I just said down my roving microphone, well, I love the Tripods. (laughs) And he said down his... Well, you must be the only one who did. And everybody laughed. Uh, I'm not having a pop at him here. I'm just relating the story to illustrate that I really felt like nobody else cared about it. Yeah. So when I, um, I wrote to Richard Bates, and he put me in touch with Adrian Andrews, who created this... BBC, li- not licensed, but recognised, yeah. yeah, authorised fan club called the League of Freemen. So I wrote to Adrian Andrews, and he very kindly sent me uh, an issue of his little fanzine. What was it called? Mont Blanc, which is White Mountain. Yeah, and it explained to me that the the league was now defunct. It, it was discontinued. There were yeah. thirty members in it. 
and we had a little there was a little badge Blue Peter had done some Olympic Games badges with a tripod yeah. image on so he sent me one of those and I thought oh well that's that then until the internet arrives <laughs> and then I started looking for other fans of the tripods on the internet I found a guy called Stuart Wiss who is in America and he put up this website I think it was tripods.org and it was a mine of information yeah uh, all sorts of interviews and things that he culled from all all over the, the net to put them in one place photographs and stuff that I really love that Stuart Wiss's website uh, there was another one by uh, somebody called Graham Nelson it was a, a very very in-depth kind of essay on mm. not just the tripods but BBC science fiction of the day the culture of the BBC and their mindset I don't know what his background is but he seemed to, he knew his stuff you know that was great that and then I found a Yahoo group and it was the League of Freemen. It was Adrian yeah. Andrews's group, now online. I joined that, re-established contact with him. Then uh, Jim Baker, who played Henry, got involved and was thrilled to know that there yeah. were people out there who still loved it. Uh, so then I met the, some of these people that I've mentioned already, Graz, yeah. um, Daniel Jarnstrom from Finland, Sven, oh, how, I can't remember how you pronounce his surname, Vucenovic. Vukenovic, something like that. Yeah, uh, he he runs his own tripods fan club in Germany. Germany. So they had it dubbed into German, and he thought, much as I did here, uh, that all the mountains and everything really were there. You yeah. Know, in France, when they go over to France, he didn't think it's Snowdonia no. with a. Uh, an alp superimposed on top yeah. but he, he he was completely fooled by uh, the special effects wow. and it looks quite good even now doesn't it some of those shots yeah. in the mountains you don't think oh that's uh, Blyfestiniog uh, with, no. with some uh, mountains stuck on top so we, we arranged a, a meeting at uh, Friday Street in uh, Dorking in Surrey which is the location for Wurton Village it's actually just a hamlet of cottages. It's not yeah. a village at all. When you get that shot of the pond and the houses across the way, that's all there is. That's it. And a little <laughs> pub. And the little pub in the series is the blacksmiths. Right. You know in that opening shot where you see someone yes. hammering some metal? The, the, the open doorway <laughs> is, uh, was a makeshift door and it's opposite the pub. Wow. <laughs> Very convincing. It, great. Wow. The building that was used as a school is just some ha a house on the other side of the road yeah. the part that was um, the den with those iron gates that's about a mile away on some private property we all went down there and then got, <laughs> got told off for being on private property and Jim had to because Jim Baker metals there he had to explain where, where I used to be in this TV series called The Tripods and we filmed here when I was 17 Yeah, and uh, we're just having a look at the locations and the, the stern faces it was, it was like uh, I think we better get out of here quick <laughs> so so we we saw that the bit where Will and Henry first see Ozymandias and Ozymandias is pretending to be a vagrant yeah and he walks across that bridge with his eyes like saucers my name is Ozymandias <laughs> we went to see that and it was all overgrown mm. that part where Will and Henry are walking down with their vagrant baskets with the food in which looks lovely yeah. on the program it's all trees that now but it was wonderful meeting up with uh, Jim on another occasion we had Sven and some friends of his who were Tripos fans they flew over from Germany to be at this 
Daniel Yarnstrom and his wife Joanna came over. Chris Jones has been over from New Zealand. So although there's only about 30 of us, yes. <laughs> to be fair, when you go on the Facebook page and the old Yahoo group had hundreds yeah. of members... I say 30, there are 20 to 30 people who are actively yes. involved and will meet up at these these events. But when it was the Yahoo group, there were there was about 300 or something. So there, there are people out there who remember it fondly. Kerry Seal, who played Beanpole, I met Kerry at um, Brighton. We had an event down at Brighton. Adrian yeah. Andrews set it up. And it was Richard Bates, the producer. Great to meet him. Yeah. Jim Baker, Henry, uh, Robin Hater, who played Fritz. Yeah. Everybody forgets Robin, which really bugs me. Whenever they talk about the tripods in these documentaries, they, yeah. all, they talk about the three main leads and forget there was a fourth. Of course. Fritz was one of the principal characters of series two. It's because nobody was watching by that point. Sadly. Sadly, yes. yeah. Yeah, I, I have a friend of mine, uh, Gavin, um, who's never seen series two. He, 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 he was... <laughs> so put off by it by the end of series one when yeah. they ran the trailers for series two he didn't watch it I said man you missed the best stuff yeah you know effects wise and um, the pacing of it it is the better of the two series series one is more of a character thing yeah series two if you want effects and, the, and a faster pacing that's where you should be I'm going off a bit now, but with the um, yeah the fan meeting and uh, and we watched the episode the games episode because that was um, I was going to say they're all in it but they're not are it's they the one but it's a big one for Fritz of course yeah Henry has gone by episode two hasn't he that yeah that would have been the best one to watch with every everybody in it but uh, Adrian said to me which episode this this made me smile because he's the lead, lead you know, <laughs> the guy who leads the fan club and he yeah. says to me which episode is the one with the games. I just went episode four straight away. <laughs> uh, and we watched episode four on a, on, a, yeah. on a projector, you know? Yeah. And then took questions. Richard Bates took questions afterwards. It was uh, mm. great to meet up. And uh, another one was Dino Wig, uh, the Electric Mountain. Yes. Now, I did this one on my own. It's in North Wales. Uh, it's the hydroelectric power plant that was used for the uh, foundations of the City of Gold. Yes, where they escape through the, the, the water. Yeah, that, all of that. And, and you know, those big turbines, those green, oh, oh, yes. green and yellow turbines uh, are, are there. And when Pierre is t giving Fritz a tour of the city, uh, mm. and it all looks exactly as it did. It's, <laughs> it's not changed at all. And you're walking around and the lady on the tour was, uh, she said, you may uh, think that this is uh, like something out of Doctor Who, she said. And I realised she didn't know. And she'd said in her opening spiel that it was um, cameras and filming and f no photographs. Yeah. You had to put your phone in a locker before you went in. Yeah. And that, that no one had ever photographed or filmed in there. And I, at the end of it, I approached her privately <laughs> and said, actually, it was used for a, a science fiction series called The Tripods. Yeah. And when I got back to my hotel room, I sent her some links to yes. the episodes and she emailed back about 10 minutes later and said this is definitely our place <laughs> she said she said the bit where the boy is running running down the cavern to escape yeah. is our our fire escape she said <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we had a fire drill only the other week she said and uh, the bit where Fritz uh, accompanies Will and the Will jumps yeah. into the water that's all outdoors it was shot at night 
and you, if you watch it you can see little flakes of snow <laughs> while Will and Fritz are having their exchange there yeah. the stump man must have been freezing when he jumped in that Yeah. but yeah so I, I recommend that a visit to Dinowig the electric mountain right. it's worth going whether you're interested in the tripods or not it's a fascinating place right. and that was our last time hearing from Will Hadcroft yeah we've uh, we've been to North Wales as well to uh, some of the slate mines used for the five doctors which was used in um, the tripods of course but there's a f- kind of fixation with North Wales. In fact, we even filmed part of a, a Cyberman fan film there, uh, Deconstruction, around those uh, those slate mines. Or... In Festiniog. Yeah, that's the one. I can never say it properly. And it's almost like Wales, or North Wales specifically, is the UK equivalent of Vasquez Rocks used in mm, Star Trek. For all sorts, like Doctor Who, episodes such as The Abominable Snowman, Mask of Mandragora, Five Doctors, The Prisoner... Discworld, Last Train, yeah. The Keep. A couple really? Of, yeah, a couple I think of. Ja- filmed in Wales. A couple of James Bond movies: Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty-four, really? Secret Garden, Clash of the Titans, Willow, Tomb Raider. Wow. Various versions of King Arthur. Well, I think it's just because it's it's rural and rugged looking, and it's close to London. That was a reason why the BBC used it anyway. Mm. I mean, to be fair to the prisoner, they they went for something because it looked. Strange and different. Well, Port Port Marian. Marian. Yeah, it wasn't a slate quarry, was it? No. no, I've only ever been to one filming location. Oh yeah, um, and it's Gothland's t- train station. I think that's actually how you say it. Oh, it? Harry Potter. Yeah, yes. Wh- which one? To be fair, is, is oh, that, we've been to railway children. Is that the Hogsmeade? Uh, yeah, Hogsmeade, yeah station. Hogsmeade station. And I've yeah. been to the railway children. Oh, I've been there. Mm. Yeah, I've personally have never purposely gone for a filming location, but weirdly, because of my jaunts around North uh, Wales, I've probably inadvertently been to quite a few of these. I've been to many a slate mine. Uh, I've been to Port oh, Marion. Yeah. Um, yeah. My parents been, dragged us around. I don't know if we actually ever went into the power station when I was younger at Lamberis. I feel like it's something that if I asked. Our parents, they'd say probably when I was really young, which Rebecca should remember, but she doesn't always remember everything. They but, dragged us around mines and quarries in Wales. But I do, I'm going to say, but I do know I've, I've been into Lamberis many a time, uh, so much so that I know about the inland surfing. Sorry, I do like that. It does interest me because it's like... I've heard of these kind of yeah. places. I haven't been in a while. If you so. want to surf inland, you can go to Lamberis. <laughs> and visit the power station. I don't necessarily think it is the power station. I think it's just next door to it. I think I think it's just using the water that they use for it. But sadly, uh, recent uh, the Electric Mountain is undergoing major refurbishment, and it, since 2021 has been closed to visitors. And apparently, there's no plans to ever reopen it to the public again, which is really sad. Aww. Right, guys, shall we listen to our final interview clip this episode? Yes. I don't want it to end. Oh well, tough. And now we're going to listen to our final clip with Richard Bates. Uh, how would you approach the series now? Would you do it as another series or, or do it as three movies? If we were starting out from scratch now... Yes, if you have to make it now. Well, I don't, I don't know what the marketplace is really no. at the moment for children's sci-fi. You see, we've, we've lost children's programming too. That's, we've lost children's drama. Yeah. There was a requirement... Uh, in the old days, that the BBC and the ITV companies had to make 
a certain amount of programming and they had to make drama, they had to make comedy, yeah. they had to make children's programs, they had to make religious programs, yeah. documentaries and so on and so forth. So they were required to provide a very broad service. Slowly over the years, of course, they've dropped program areas that don't pull in the big numbers. I mean, religion got dropped a long time ago. Children's programs have now largely disappeared. I don't think there's any children's drama on ITV. No, not uh, at all. And apart from CBeebies, uh, which I don't watch, obviously, um, I, I don't think there's any children's drama on uh, on the BBC either. There, there is on C, CBBC, which yeah. is the, the grown-up yeah. CBBs. There isn't anywhere near as much as there used to be, yeah. and they're catering yeah. to a younger age range than they used to. Yeah. Do you think that's a great loss to television, that, oh, absolutely. that British television's not making these yeah. shows anymore? It is a great loss, because the great thing about... I mean, I love making children's programs, and uh, I think you know I made Chucky. Uh, yeah, yeah. I loved making Chucky. And the great thing about children's programs is you can use your imagination. You can do, you know, tripods. You can do Chucky. It doesn't have to be sci-fi, but you can use your imagination. And of course, it's a one shouldn't see it in this way, but of course, it's a very good training ground for new program makers. It's a good place to yeah. start. And we used to have afternoon drama more than we have now. And we have Doctors, whatever it's called, yeah. at 4 o'clock on BBC One. But we used to have ITV regularly used to produce some sort of afternoon drama. And that, again, was a very good training ground for new writers, producers, directors, and, and actors mm -hmm. as well. And we've lost that. So um, we lose these things at our peril. You know, these prestige American dramas like, say, The West Wing or The yeah. Sopranos, that's kind of set a bar, and, and British television's tried to match it, haven't they? Yeah. And like you said, you've got to have that experience to match it. It's getting the right people commissioned, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and allowing writers to do what they do best. The scripts for, for The West Wing were always amazing. And, you know, he's gone on to be, you know, one of the finest film writers and, mm. and a very good director too. His scripts, no matter what he does, are just breathtaking, I think. I would love to work with a writer of that sort of <laughs> skill. I mean, I've worked with a lot of writers very, very happily over a, a long career. But you, you come across somebody like Zorkin and you just think, oh, wow. And to turn out those scripts for West Wing, you know, series after series, never put a foot wrong, in my opinion. Just amazing. We don't have that. We have good writers, but we don't have that sort of tr big talent, in my opinion. Mm. We may have it in the theatre and so on and so forth, maybe for, for movie, movies, but we don't have it in television. Just going back a little bit, did you enjoy meeting the Tripods fans? Because I know you helped Adrian Andrews set up the League of Freemen, or, or you gave yeah. him permission, uh, and you attended a couple of fan events. I did. That was fun. No, I enjoyed that. Was it vindication for you? <laughs> yes, I suppose so, yes. I mean, it, the, the meetings weren't in huge numbers. We weren't exactly mobbed on the street. But, but it, it was very nice and encouraging for me to think that people remembered it with affection and degree of admiration and, uh, and pleasure. So that was important. That was important. Yeah. I was just thinking, I don't does I don't think Netflix makes any children's programs, do they? 
that yeah, uh, tend to buy in stuff, a lot of animated yeah. things, but not dramas or anything. And so much, as you were saying just a moment ago, Rebecca, uh, and so much of children's program now is animated. Mm. It's all animation because it's easily revoiced and yes. you can sell it, you know, any station in the world. And more focusing on the younger end of the children's market and less the older because there's that assumption that children are going to move on to watching talent shows. And I think that's very sad that yeah. there's less imagination there. It's a shame. No, no the world changes. Yeah. And that was Farewell to Richard Bates. It was um, fantastic speaking to Richard. I mean, not just about the tripods. You know, if we'd been doing an Avengers podcast, I would have loved to have picked his brains about that. Mm. And also being a, a fan of, of classic television and, and production, you know, just hearing his production stories, you know, like the nightmare of losing an episode after it was mastered and, and just hearing about developing scripts and budgets and all that. He was fantastic given his time. That was a very interesting point brought up by Richard there regarding this great loss of children's TV drama, British t children's TV drama. Yeah. And it has been a big issue because when we got to the 2000s, CITV reduced its scope, its target demographic from about the age of five to 11. They narrowed it down to about, well, three to five-year-olds, six-year-olds, and it was all yeah. focused on preschoolers. And then they moved it from Tea Time TV and Saturday mornings to just being its own digital channel. So they kept reducing it and reducing it. Wasn't it also and, down to the fact they couldn't advertise fast food, yes, for example? Yes, it was Jamie Oliver. <laughs> Basically, Jamie Oliver did his... Well, it was an important campaign against turkey twizzlers and processed yes. food. But a big fallout of that was junk food TV adverts were banned in during children's programming. And that was what was funding all those CITV shows. And that was a big hole. And so we lost a lot of shows. Thanks, oh. Jamie. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. And now, again, children's TV in Britain is in danger because Nadine Doris has cut the £44 million fund that was designed to support this sector of children's television in Britain. So it was called the Young Audiences Content Fund, which was intended to help British broadcasters compete with the likes of YouTube, Netflix and American services. And what has she cut that for? It's uh, part apart, of this culture war thing. An insane act by someone who's not sympathetic at all to any of the arts from everything I've heard about her. It's just crazy because, yeah, I mean, people keep saying, why do we need a BBC licence fee? They should compete with Netflix and stuff. And oh, we don't, oh, I don't need it because we've got Netflix and Prime and stuff. It's like, yeah, but Netflix and Prime are not beholden to the regulations and rules that broadcast TV is. They don't have to provide news shows or sports and they don't have to provide local media and they don't have to provide a set amount of British children's television content. It means future generations of our children are going to be brought up on a diet of purely American content. Uh, exactly. My, my children, from watching Netflix and YouTube, will pronounce some things the American way. Mm, and that's a problem. Yeah, I'm going to have to disown them if it carries on. I must admit, I have that problem with one word. I've had it all my life and I still don't know <laughs> the correct pronunciation of it. And I'll always go, vase or vase? I think it's vars for us, isn't it? Yes, they, they, they do that gag in uh, Disney's Hercules. Yes, yeah, they do. But I, I'm always a bit like unsure. I'm always like 70%, 30% like, on it. Like, have yeah. I said vars right? The, the main one that my children do is, without even thinking about it, they say Z. I do. I've always done because I grew up <sighs> with Sesame Street and I can't. Und it's so hard for me to wow. not say Z. We used to be friends, Rebecca. Also, also, I've got to say, although me and Rebecca are sisters... 
and was brought up by the same parents, I always said Zed. So I mean, I know, and I still say elevator instead of lift. What? And people lift? Are, I, I just always said elevator. Well, technically, I think elevator may have come first. It might just be one of those things like aluminum and um, aluminium. I think we're deviating a bit, but a bit. But there was a campaign a few years ago, well, a decade ago now, in reaction to the initial Jamie Oliver. Uh, leading Turkey to Twizzlers. yeah, leading to the lack of CITV, and it was called Safe Kids TV (SKTV), but it's now known as the Children's Media Fund, and they raised concerns about that, yeah. saying they did this excellent short video narrated by Bernard Cribbins, and it was showing Wombles, but they were saying things like "Sunny side up." Oh, we Tubular, and saying, is this how you want your kids to be talking in the future? Because this could happen if we don't have British content. I don't know what the ratio is, but a lot of programmes on Netflix and Amazon Prime are BBC Productions. It's Yeah, it's old. Yeah. You know, it's repeats of stuff that's already been on iPlayer, but they're not making original new stuff that's in Britain. The big British production Netflix have got is The Crown. Mm. So they are making local stuff in, yeah, but in that's Britain not and children. other countries. But no, it, it's not. I don't think Netflix are making a specific British kids' TV. And I'm not against American programs. As I said, I was watching American kids' shows, but yeah. I did notice a shift from when, I, in the 80s, when I was little, and it was all, it was basically BBC, CBBC, CITV, and that was it. And on Sundays, you yeah. got Disney Club. And then in the 90s, suddenly there was this shift, and I didn't know as a kid, but there was a change in the rules of how much American content was allowed on our channels. And yeah, there was a big change in the TV landscape then. There was all these American shows, Nickelodeon, I mean, more so than before. The big satellite and cable boom. Mm, but even then on terrestrial channels, there was still an influx of more American shows. Yeah, although I think you said when we were talking to Richard how CBBC are still making children's drama. Yeah. Uh, some of it co-productions, but they're, they're still making it. Mm. But obviously it's on it's on satellite. Maybe yeah, it's not I getting play. as big an audience as it would. Mm. Yeah, because they did a, an update sequel of the Demon Headmaster, for example, didn't they? <gasps> yes, they, they did. They, they did. I bet a lot of people weren't aware of that. Yeah, uh, Wolf Blood, that was a, a very good one recently. I mean, they have made some really cool stuff in recent years. Sarah Jane Adventures, The Worst Witch, Creeped yeah. Out, Danger Mouse. You know, there's been some really cool stuff. I'm glad you're naming stuff because I it's can't think of anything that wasn't from my from my childhood. But I would say I don't look yeah. for children's TV as an adult. No. No, I mean, I found out some of these shows because of Den of Geek, which I don't go on anymore because they merged the UK and American science and now it's US-centric, so... Screw them. And more ads. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. But yeah, so there is a place, certainly, for the BBC licence for you, and I think it's shocking what Nadine Doris is doing, taking away that funding. But that's the thing, it's always the same with the arts. People don't think of it as important, but they're going to moan in a few years' time when there isn't much choice out there and people are stuck with predominantly American stuff. Yeah. If you've listened to every episode of the podcast so far, you'll have heard about how the three of us discovered the books, TV shows and other merchandise and how much they mean to us. In this episode, it's time for us to shine the spotlight on you listeners, the fans of the tripods. We recently put out a request on social media asking fans to submit an audio recording of why they love the tripods. We have had a good selection of contributions from not just the UK, but from all corners of the world. Thank you to those of you who took the time and sent these submissions to us. And now it's time for you, listeners, to take over. Hello, I'm Graz Richards. It's 1984, and I am 11 years old. I'm sitting on the city with my dad, and we're watching telly. I remember we're mulling over in our heads all the um, 
as we used to call them, like uh, the the landmark TV series. Obviously, Doctor Who, Blake Seven, and mentioning Tomorrow People are sort of like the only series that's really sort of set the world alight. There's TV series that uh, everyone remembers and there's big fan bases of. And there was other like fantasy obscure shows like Cat Weasel or Dick Turpin that sort of like made a big impression. And Romulus Sherwood, which I think appeared just a few months before Tripods. But there was nothing really new as far as sci-fi was concerned since who and Black Seven and Tomorrow People, there's nothing really a huge sci-fi series. I mean, what, where can you go with sci-fi now after those those key series that we've enjoyed? What comes next? And while we were speaking about that, uh, an advert appeared on the telly, uh, which was the tripods with the uh, the metal machine standing in uh, Wharton's Lake with what appeared to be people in a sort of an old world attire. And they're sort of looking up at wonder at this machine. And uh, my dad and me <laughs> exchanged these glances and, oh my gosh, <laughs> what is this? Oh, maybe there's going to be like a modern version of War of the Worlds as finally going to be possible but this obviously isn't that what is this what have the bbc gone and done is this upcoming series exactly what we've been waiting for this blend of genres and i think it really was both myself and my sister bought the books from the the old puffin book club and she read through hers and and uh, you know no spoilers please no spoilers my dad followed suit okay I really wanted to let the experience of the TV show be a surprise. I do want to know what was supposed to happen in, in the books. So the first episode aired and I absolutely adored it uh, and watched it again the very next day. Uh, invited a friend round and subjected them to it. Poor things. So, well, I think it wasn't just the one friend. I think uh, over the next few days um, I, inv- I invited a couple of friends from school who said they were interested in it. But when they asked, did you watch Tripods? Uh, no, they hadn't. Right, you're coming round. You're going to watch it. So I watched it again the next day and then the next day and the next day up until the airing of episode two. And then I'd watch episode one and two back to back until episode three aired and so on one two three then one two three four then you know every day until the next episode came on and i'd, I'd rewatch all the continuity announcements as well like the uh, will harry and beanpole that one uh, once uh, series one had concluded um yeah i had this like a uh, feeling that we wouldn't get a series two so um, I watched the whole thing over and over and over and I'd clamber across the furniture imagining that the settee and the chairs were the harsh cold terrain of Mont Blanc. I think m- most of it was that sheer enjoyment of pretending to join in the adventure, that uh, imagining experiencing the journey with the young protagonists. And uh, so it wasn't just the concept of fighting alien oppression, that sort of thing. Um, It was very clear even then, this sort of acceptance of this invasion by the majority of the population, the capped sort of thing. And the way that sort of echoed in me the inability, it seemed, for people to break away from the most dreary of conventions. How is that even possible that mankind goes on and on and doing all the same things in the most dreary manner uh, and accepts it? And the way that humans conduct their businesses and being really non-inclusive and lacking imagination and, and being forced down this really sort of like insular road in their day-to-day lives. It's so 
obvious even to a very small boy that there is this need to just break away from it and, and to go on this marvellous adventure and all of that of course being told amid the wonderful rolling countryside and things like that because that's one of the things I enjoyed about the other programmes like the Cat Weasels and the Dick Turpins and Robin Sherwood's the, that wonderful old world vibe some of that well a lot of that actually crept into tripods as well uh, so that sort of countryside with, uh, with huge silver gods <laughs> striding across it as well perfect I mean unique it stayed with me all these years and through the fandom as well I've made some lovely friends so the whole package of the tripods has been such a gift and I have always always enjoyed it uh, so for that yes of course we thank the tripods thank you Hello, my name is Daniel Jarnström. I am the current president, if you will, of the League of Freemen Tripods Fan Club, which was founded in the mid-1980s by the late, great Adrian Andrews and also run later on by Grass Richards before I took over. Personally, I've been a fan of the show since it was on television up here in Finland in 1987. And ever since I rewatched it in 2005 or something, mid-2000s anyway, uh, I've been a big fan of visiting filming locations on private holidays and also with the League as part of meetups we do. With the League, we've mostly been in England, but privately I've been to Wales a couple of times and to Switzerland, to Grimentz, which is the village in Series 2, Episode 1, where the, where the capping takes place. It's a beautiful place. If you want to know more about the League of Freemen, you can go to Facebook. Check us out there. The League of Freemen Tripods Society is the full name. So you can join the group and lots of good chatting going on there all the time about tripods and, and everything. And also about this lovely tripods cast going on here. So, uh, yeah, thank you and uh, enjoy. Hi, I'm Amanda Jones and I'm a professor of chemistry in North Carolina. When I read The White Mountains, I was 11 years old and found most books prior to it boring and dull. I read the entire trilogy that year and most of John Christopher's other YA novels shortly after. There's an early moment in The Pool of Fire that prompted me to tell my teacher that I was partying in my head. I'm pretty sure those were my exact words. I was so relieved and happy. No book before had affected me so strongly. My head spun at his blending of science and adventure. I was fascinated by the mystery of futures that looked so much like the past. The technological and philosophical theme set me abuzz, and I associate his books with a pivotal time of self-discovery and learning. John Christopher helped turn me into a reader. Rereading his books as an adult, I find they embody a certain writing perfection. As a girl fan, I cannot ignore the problematic representation of girls, but when I set it aside, I can revel in books that are deep with ideas and rich with character development. His writing is clear and efficient, yet wholly evocative. They are books that hold up for me. I can read them again and feel the same buzz I felt before, discovering how amazing books could be. I'm Andy, and I'm from Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK. When I was younger than 10, my dad got me the trilogy books. He'd, um, he'd read them as a child and knew I'd like them. I'd read them in bed until forced to turn out my light. Uh, these were the first books I'd read at that age that were written from a first-person perspective. So I found that I loved that and remember wanting to hurry back to bed each day to continue the story. I do remember preferring the second book as here we were, undercover in the Tripod City, and I actually got to like Will's master, West468, uh, and I enjoyed Will and his master's discussions. 
What really sticks in my memories from those many years ago was uh, Henry's death in the third book. Uh, at that age, none of the characters I'd read in other books had died or had died in such a way. I thought about that for days. Um, when I read them today, it just brings those memories flooding back. Hello, I'm Andrew Kimes, and I've just got a few words to say about how I got into the tripods. On uh, one of the regular recording sessions for Westlake Productions, a fan group uh, led by the very same editor of this podcast series, Kevin Hiley, we were recording the latest Doctor Who fan audio. John Isles uh, was playing one of the companion roles, so his recording time would take all afternoon. However, I was there to fill in just a few audio lines here and there. So for much of the afternoon, I was simply surplus to requirements. So to stop me from climbing the walls all afternoon, Kevin asked if I'd seen a series called The Tripods. I mentioned I'd seen the odd episode of the original broadcast when I was about seven, but otherwise, nope. So uh, he dug out a collection of VHS tapes and I said, okay, I'll watch an episode or two. Well, five hours later, (laughs) I was completely hooked. I'd watched almost the entire first season and was immediately consumed by it. The characters, the brilliant music, the model work all came together. I was amazed that it wasn't more widely known. How could I have not known about this before? Anyway, after the recording session ended, I continued watching the episodes, refusing to start the journey home even with John. Uh, From then on, I was a fan. Thank you. Hi, I'm Arlo. I'm from New Zealand. What the tripods means to me is... I guess creativity and inspiration because it inspired me to create the fan film series that is a prequel to the original which is being finished at the moment so hopefully the rest of season two will come out soon so on a personal level I would say it's very inspiring and creative on a general level the story is fantastic and the deeper meaning with the whole ethical question of would we be better off if we were capped and the destructive nature of humans that's a really interesting topic and one which unfortunately has become quite relevant recently but oh well um we're not here to talk about that and lastly i would just say the fans it's a small but vibrant community but it's surprising that after 40 years there's still it's still being talked about. So I think this fandom is, is very special as well. Hi, my name is Olmo and uh, I live in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. I was eight when I first watched the tripods in the late 80s and I was pretty scared but also extremely attracted by the series. Our national TV has been the only one to broadcast the series in Italian. They actually made the dubbing. Italian networks never did, which is why the series is almost unknown in Italy and uh, has never been released on VHS or DVD in Italian. Yes, not only we didn't get the third series, but uh, as grown-ups it was almost impossible to find a series, at least in Italian. Plus, the books remain unpublished in Italian, of course. Fun fact, the Italian dubbing tries to slightly mitigate the ending, the famous has it all been for nothing, becomes we will not give up our freedom. That, that would be the translation. Thank you for your great podcast. Hi, I'm Richard Brewer, and I'm from Hampshire. 
I suppose I would have been around five years old when I first watched the tripods on our tiny black and white Hitachi television set. With no video recorder on our house uh, then, elements of each episode would be committed to memory, then later sketched out on numerous drawing pads. I even got family members in on it, notably my older sister, uh, who also, she also enjoyed the show, but nobody in my family was nearly as, as obsessed with the tripods as me. And even after the devastating realisation that the show was not coming back after series two, my love for the tribals never let up. Catching rare glimpses of them on TV or on book covers were like discovering lost treasure. Later, reading the books only cemented my love for the tripod saga, and I love that they made the stories feel as if they took place in a real rather than fantastical world. Uh, no other story has fired my imagination in quite the same way. It's inspired me to go on and write my own work, and I now even own my very own tripod, which watches over me ominously as I write. Hello, I'm Tim Reed, co-host of the Randomizer podcast, which is very much the I'm sorry I haven't a clue of Doctor Who podcasts. Not, you understand, because it's unscripted and hilarious, but because we literally don't have a clue. Anyway, here are my thoughts on the tripods. I'm pretty sure I'd read the books before the TV series came on, and I distinctly remember and indeed still have one book from the trilogy, which had covers that would match together to make one big picture, which blew my tiny mind. I loved that. I'm really sad I don't have the second and third books anymore. But when the TV series came on, I enjoyed it very much, although having revisited it, I can see some of its flaws. But I do remember overall else being absolutely scandalised and outraged that the BBC ended the series after season two and changed the ending from the book and left it on a massive cliffhanger never to be resolved. But overall, very fond memories, really captured my imagination. The caps were creepy and the tripods were scary. And I loved all the scenes in season two and the second book in the city. So very fond memories of that programme. I'm loving your podcast. Hello, my name's Julian Jones, not the Julian Jones who played Daniel in Series 1 of The Tripods, before you get too excited. Despite me trying to get IMDB to separate our entries on their website for about 15 years, I'm the Julian Jones who was a Sontaran in Shakedown, um, anyway. Loved The Tripods since I was seven, when it was first transmitted, drew lots of pictures when we went on holiday to France uh, in 1985, I imagined them out of the car window stomping across the French landscape. And also, when we used to go to Horsel Common, I used to imagine them looming over the treetops. Later, worked that into some lyrics of a song we wrote called The Sand Pits. My dad recorded both series on video, um, but I didn't get to see it again until they officially released them, because a burglar stole all his home recorded tapes because they were worth money believe it or not uh, in my teens scoured second-hand bookshops charity shops to find the books so i could finally find out what happened in the missing third tv series i also own the spectrum computer game and ken freeman's brilliant soundtrack cd so i guess you could say i was a fan of the tripods my name is Richard. I'm 43 years old, originally from Essex and now live in the West Midlands. The Tripods TV series was first broadcast when I was five and six years old and made a huge impression on my childhood. Around ten years later, I read the books, which I also really enjoyed, and as a result of the podcast, revisited and reread them recently. One of my brothers, who sadly passed away a few years ago, actually read the books before I did, 
and if he was still here, he would have really enjoyed the podcast as well. Thank you for encouraging me to reread the books and rewatch the series, which has brought back many happy memories for me. Hi, Stephen from Radio Free Scarrow, a Doctor Who podcast, uh, here to tell you that the Tripods is still probably the TV series that is most important to me. When I was in my teens, I stumbled upon the last few seconds of an episode, then saw and heard the closing titles and was immediately transfixed. I needed to know what the series was, and by the time I got around to watch my first episode, it turned out to be the last episode, and my tape ran out, just as Will and Beanpole came over the hill to supposedly see the camp of the Freeman. So I watched episode one. The next week after it looped around was hooked every single week after that and finally got to the last scene where we all know what happened. Um, the Tripods was my first experience with serialized storytelling. I loved the ambitious visual effects. I loved Ken Freeman's score. I loved the City of Gold. And perhaps because we never got an ending, it just makes me want to watch the series again and again. As with missing episodes of Doctor Who, it's what we don't have that is the most intriguing. Uh, thanks for doing the podcast. It was a, it's been great hearing from those that made the show and from fans who are new to the series. All hail the Tripods. I'm Gareth Preston host of Very British Futures, the podcast about UK science fiction television. You can find it on your favourite podcast app, and in fact we discussed the tripods in our very first season. I first found John Christopher's books in my local library as a schoolboy, the ideal time to read them. I must have enjoyed the first book, but my memories of the novels are tied up with the follow-ups. Will's experiences in the city, where I imagine the masters looking quite different to how they appeared on television. Will painting himself green and horse riding to lure a tripod into a trap. The heroic death of Henry during the final assault and the bitter epilogue of humanity quickly falling into factions again once the aliens had been vanquished. The original trilogy is briskly written with good descriptions. I can really recommend The Guardians as well, a less fantastical but more subtle take on tyranny and how it is maintained. The television series is something I've come to appreciate more on a second viewing. At the time, I watched the first series and felt it too often resembled a family Sunday classic period adaptation. I became annoyed by the seemingly repetitive plotline that saw the boys being tempted to give up their quest by romance twice. It's only later I appreciated that the Vineyard episodes are a well-thought-out development of the more melodramatic dilemma of the Chateau, the comely farm girls offering a more attractive and practical alternative to their uncertain fugitive future. But following this, I was won back at the time by one of my favourite episodes, a tense storyline as the trio are trapped under a tripod and Will gets a glimpse of what lurks inside. For the second series, I didn't see all of it at the time, missing the sports event and the circus subplot, but I did enjoy the unashamed science fiction of the middle city section. Still an impressive combination of model work and early CGI. Then I read that the series had been cancelled and felt slightly guilty that I had contributed to its demise by giving up watching after Will's escape from the Masters. It was years before I would watch it again out of nostalgia and curiosity. 
and it was here that I came to appreciate the tripods. I was wrong to try and compare it with Doctor Who, Blake 7 or Sunday classics. It's not so much a battle between the human resistance and the alien invaders. It's an epic quest journey in a world ruled by mysterious giants in the background. It's well made and better acted than I remembered too. And that journey has a wide variety of mini-adventures that range from period rural adventure to post-apocalyptic cities, from a hotel farce to a space fantasy. Settle in for the journey, and the tripods rewards you with entertainment and some interesting questions about freedom, safety, pragmatism and idealism. Let's hope it keeps being discovered, whether as a book, a British TV series, or a US-funded streaming blockbuster. Wow, that was really fantastic, guys. Thanks to everyone who took the time to contribute their stories. Yeah, it's very good. It was really interesting how we had fans who got into the books first and those who got into the show first. I feel sorry for graduates and school friends. And watching every episode again and again. And I was thinking, oh, whoa, that's really dedicated. But then I'm thinking, wait a minute, I did stuff like that at that age too. Watching the same thing again and again and again. Oh, yeah. Because you can when you're a kid. It's weird. Yeah. Um, and it was great hearing about how people were inspired like to write their own stories or to make their own fan films mm. or how it got them into reading. So we had Amanda Jones talking about how it ignited a passion in reading for her at school. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. And just hearing about, you know, the Italian version, mm. uh, tweaking the ending. And, and, and also, you know, we've had people from America, New Zealand, continental Europe. And people from across the UK as far as Newcastle, Scotland... As far as we're going, just the north. The, the, the south. I'm just saying, yeah, we had Hampshire as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I have, um, actually, I have a confession to make after hearing all those uh, what? fan com- conversion stories, so to speak. What? Yeah, so... Um, I feel like conversion it sounds like the <laughs> wrong word to use there. <laughs> well, The Cult of the Tripods was, was a title of the programme. Oh, don't go down there. Really no, mean. no, no. John Shackley will spank you. This will probably get me kicked off the podcast yeah, or, or probably. something. <laughs> so I watched the program originally as a child. Uh, I enjoyed it. I don't remember being bored by it for both series. And then I just kind of forgot about it until I got into sci-fi fandom in, in the early 90s and read the articles in TV Zone. But I kind of subscribed to that, that joke of, oh, the BBC couldn't even finish it. And yes, the visual effects were poor. And yes, there was only a minute of a tripod in each episode. So I, I kind of joined in the laughing at it. And doing this podcast and interacting with the League and other fans online, doing these interviews, and also rereading the books for this podcast as well, that's really rekindled my interest. And, and you know, it's no longer a joke. I, I really enjoy it. And I, I want my daughter to read the books and, and watch the series now. So it's been a journey for me as well doing this podcast. So next episode's just me and you, yeah, Becca? I'm asking for forgiveness here. Oh. We'll forgive, but we'll never forget. Dan will also never forgive you for getting out of playing the video game. No, I won't. That That's just unforgivable. She hates everyone. <laughs> I was tortured. <laughs> tortured. 
It sounded like you had fun. Well, thank you for that confession, John. It's <laughs> <laughs> just the way you said that then. Thank you for this confession, John. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously I'm the newbie of the fandom. Mm. I didn't know about it until June of last year. I haven't even gone to a year of being a fan yet. But I do really wish that the books were pushed more, I think, in, in schools at that young age when you're a bit more impressionable, it more sticks with you more, it's more nostalgia when you're older. Like, like you, you watch the TV series and then you want to see how it ended so you bought the books. But you would get people interested in looking back at a TV series if they got into the books, because that's how I did it. And finding out that there's only two series and that they didn't finish it, it's frustrating and stuff. But, like, how many series is there out there that that happens to? And I think, yeah... If it was pushed more, there might be more love for the tripods. They should be more readily available in uh, bookstores because I can't say I see them when I go in, let's say, Waterstones or WH Smith. I don't see it alongside all the other young adult books or dystopian books. No, and, and you can only get the, the box set of all four or the first and the fourth separately mm. in the current editions. You know, the publishers didn't think there was enough interest. And that's very frustrating. It, it is, and I just wish more people would find out about these books and check them out. Well, it's like you said, the people you work with, Rebecca, you know, they have no idea what the tripods is when, no. when you tried to explain what you were doing with this podcast. No, no, no one has a clue. They just say, oh, is it that nerd stuff? It shouldn't be, because no. the books aren't particularly nerdy. No, no, they're no. not. I'm going to say it's extremely accessible. And, and don't forget, the TV series was prime time on BBC One. Mm. So, you know, it definitely wasn't aimed at a minority audience. No. And something that well, I'll definitely be talking more of in the next episode is just the fact that Sam Yud has this amazing ability of writing characters. Mm. Um, I'm a big advocate for that. Because I could think of, the only reference I could think of to it on in mainstream TV was wasn't it referenced in Spaced? Oh y- yeah, in Simon y- Pegg's y- Spaced. Y- yeah, there's a gag about some friends of of Simon Pegg's character are at a tripods convention. Mm. That's it, really. Yeah. I hope you'll join us next time when our episode airs on 16th of April, which is a very special date because that is the centenary of Sam Yude's birth. So in this final episode of Tripods Cast, we will be talking about the life and works of Sam Yude, a.k.a. John Christopher. We'll also have an interview with two of his children, Rose and Nick Yude. So that's me, Rebecca Ray, Danny Ray and John Niles saying goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Tripodscast. If you'd like to contact or comment on the show, email us at tripodscast at gmail.com, Twitter at Tripodscast, Facebook Tripodscast, Instagram Tripodscast, and Reddit r slash Tripodscast. Special thanks go to Jim Baker, Will Hadcroft, Richard Bates, and everyone who contributed their stories to us. Post-production was by Kevin Hiley.